Today's podcast is brought to you by Moody's Analytics CRE. As a commercial real estate professional, you manage complicated decisions every day. And to make the right call, you need the full story. Moody's Analytics CRE harnesses expansive integrated data and analytical expertise from across the Moody's organization, then curates it specifically for commercial real estate professionals. Learn how to make better decisions and improve CRE workflows with Moody's Analytics CRE solutions at CRE.Moody'sAnalytics.com. Welcome to WMRE's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at WMRE. Let's jump right into this week's podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. David, how are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Happy New Year. First episode yes. of 2022. How are you? Uh, so far, so good. I'm crossing fingers <laughs> that the rest of the year will be just like this. <laughs> no surprises this year, right? right? Hopefully. Yeah. Well, it's no surprise to me. You have another guest on the show. Um, I, I know it's Dan, and and I, I'm not sure even Dan's last name. So why don't you tell us, and why is he on the show today? Yeah, with us, Dan Spiegel, who is the Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Coldwell Banker Commercial. I brought Dan on Coldwell Bankers, you know, just such a, an important player in the space overall. And they've got um, a good outlook report that, that has come out with a good overview of what they're expecting to see in 2022 thought that would be a good conversation to have as we get 20 as we you know get our our year new year podcast going yeah you're bringing in the big guns this is fantastic <laughs> dan thank you so much for being on the show it's great to be here thanks for having me so i gave you a little intro but if you just want to take a second to tell people any more any more about yourself and also about your company though i imagine a lot of our listeners are familiar with you guys but you know just for those who aren't if you can kind of give us that Great, David. Thank you so much. Uh, again, Dan Spiegel, uh, Managing Director of Cobalt Banker Commercial. We are a commercial real estate services provider across the U.S. and around the globe. Uh, we have about 3,000 practitioners domestically, uh, and we cover pretty much all the, the major food groups of property. Uh, and markets large and small, actually, much of our coverage is in secondary and tertiary markets in the U.S. Uh, so we have a great perspective that's sometimes a little bit different from uh, the coverage you see in the major markets. Uh, myself, I've been in the commercial real estate industry close to, to three decades. I hate to admit it, but uh, that is what it is. Uh, and I enjoy it. And, um, you know, the market today is really just another permutation of what goes on in commercial real estate. And I look forward to speaking about it. Yeah, I think that, that is actually a good point. It's one reason I do enjoy talking with your firm over the years is that you, you guys have this penetration in the secondary and tertiary markets and offer that insight that I think is very important to get. So um, I'm looking forward to, to hearing that. So so with your, you know, we're coming off of 2021, some of the ups and downs that we've all been living through with the pandemic for commercial real estate, it was a pretty solid year pretty much across the board for all the property types. Some property types did did amazingly well. And I think even like the the biggest one that we still have some questions on is return is office and return to office and the long-term future of what offices are going to look like. So all that stuff's kind of hanging out there. But overall it was a good year. REITs, you know, you look at the REITs, they they were up tremendously. Investment sales volume was up tremendously. So just given the year given that, what are your what are some of the expectations now for for 2022? Yeah, it's it's a great recap of 2021. I think at least the last two years have been surprising both in the economy as a whole and in commercial real estate. With every uh, shock that's happened, we're never quite sure where it's going to lead. Uh, and fortunately, for the past year, it's actually turned out quite well for commercial real estate. You know, as we look ahead, 
Uh, right now, we're thinking there's going to be kind of a continuation of what has been a pretty strong market across the board. As you mentioned, office leasing, particularly in central business districts, is still a question, although uh, one does read about some sizable leases um, mm-hmm. happening across the country. There are certainly firms that are not yet returned to work and ones that are to, you know, having a different philosophy about their occupancy strategy. So that's definitely a question mark. And then the hospitality is another question mark right. um, because you know resort properties are doing quite well, but you know those properties that are uh, located in downtown markets, uh, dependent on that business traffic or you know certainly a question mark as to when they'll come back and their revenue stream will return. Uh, but overall for 2022, we're really looking at a continuation of a pretty strong market. Um, you know interest rates are expected to tick up. We'll see what impact that has in general uh, when funds are looking for real estate investment uh, and cash is on the sideline, the interest rate doesn't have a huge impact. It's more of an impact for the private investor. But we're looking at some strong fundamentals, um, you know, fueled by stable cash flows and, and pent up demand. And we'll continue to see uh, an active market in 2022. And in terms of, you know, looking at some of the secondary markets compared to the primary markets, are there some, any, any divergences in terms of performance or in, in some of these trends? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. There, there's, um, you know, when, when it, if you're from an investment standpoint, if you're looking for a net least, you know, freestanding retail establishment, that doesn't really matter, right? Those can be in suburban markets of big cities, and they can be in secondary. But when you're looking at things like office space, right, the office demand for smaller office buildings and smaller office space and secondary tertiary markets has continued to be strong from our, um, from our conversations with our professionals across the country. Um, and then some of the trends that have been in the large markets are reaching smaller markets like um, the demand and the new construction of large distribution and uh, industrial distribution of warehouse facilities. So um, the trends in the secondary and tertiary markets have been good, and they're probably even better fueled by A, investors looking to invest capital you know, coming from the coast where cap rates have gone down, looking for better returns, and then also uh, the pandemic-driven or um, shift in population, at least focus on some of the secondary and tertiary markets. And do you see, in terms of comparison and yields of core markets versus some of the secondary, tertiary, are those gaps um, tightening at all as people get more interested in some of these other markets? Yeah, it's a great, uh, great question. So the answer is yes, but there still is a, a higher return in the smaller mm-hmm. markets. I mean, I will tell you, you know, earlier, uh, middle of last year, I'd spoke at an event, uh, a business event in Grand Junction, Colorado, which you know certainly is an institutional market. But um, they they affirmed 100% that they have investors coming from you know California and other West Coast markets seeking returns in a market where you typically wouldn't be looking for investors wouldn't typically be looking for to to acquire property. So those returns are still preferential in the secondary and tertiary markets. Although you know as investors pour in, um, those uh, cap rates get compressed as well. And in terms of like those investors that are looking at. These kind of markets has that also changed? Are there new kinds of capital that you're seeing in some of these markets that maybe weren't there before? Uh, I don't. We didn't. You know, I don't think we've seen new types of capital. I just mm-hmm. think we, what we've witnessed is investors that might have said in the past, "I'll just can stick to the West Coast for a moment." You know, I only want to you know buy in California, Arizona, Nevada. Perhaps now they're just not finding what they want. 
mm-hmm. they're saying, hey, let's look in in Wyoming or Idaho or Montana, right? They're just they're stretching their their both their property type search preferred, um, as well as their geography to find uh, investment um, properties that meet their criteria. Got it. So pivoting to one of the property sectors in your report, you've got a heading here that says built to rent is the new multifamily. And that's certainly something that we've covered a lot over the past year, just as a lot, not just even over, I guess the past several years is the expansion of the single family rental market, the institutionalization of it, and then, and, and it becoming so popular that in order to get the product. Now you have this dynamic of just straight building houses that are meant to go straight into this rental pipeline. So I've kind of, you know, so it seems like that's something that, that you expect to, to continue this year. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's super interesting, right? You know, um, the, if you think about it and given that our company has a residential arm as well, right. Right. You build in a sense, you know, private investors have been doing this for years, right. Buying a house, maybe upgrading it and then renting it out. Right. That was, that's been very common for the, uh, the private investor for years. And now over the past, maybe we'll say two years, institutional money, as you pointed out, has really poured into this segment, looking at it as a, just a whole investment class unto itself, kind of as a comparable to multifamily. Um, so we, you know, it's the, in secondary and tertiary markets in particular, where housing demand uh, and maybe lack of supply is particularly notable. Uh, we've seen an uptick in land sales. And land sales really have been going for two purposes, really across the country, but also, but particularly in secondary and tertiary, which is either for multifamily development and, and it can be multifamily build to, to rent or for industrial. Those are the two, you know, land uses, right, land right. demand that have been going off the charts. And build a rent is sort of a new, and obviously it takes a big chunk of land to build a, a whole subdivision to rent. But it's an interesting twist. It's something that I don't think we would have been talking about three years ago. Yeah, it does seem to be again the, the institutionalization of it, but also I guess from the renter preference level, people in this reality that we've had, or I think, or maybe people that in the past would have been your typical new home buyers, just continuing to rent homes now instead of buying. It just seems like a lot of dynamics are are, are coming together to sort of fuel this demand for 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 rental of the single family housing stock. Right. And it just wasn't thought of, as I said, a number of years ago as an institutional class right. investment. And now it is. And I think that's a that's a very interesting dynamic going on. Uh, but it definitely, you know, there's a, you know, outside of the commercial space, there's a, there's a lot of talk about lack of housing inventory across the board. So, um, you know, build to rent or, or single family to rent is certainly fills some of that gap in demand. So you also flagged industrial as being a big user of some of that land. And I think it was the, the CEO of Prologis recently who said something like that. There's basically no industry. You can't, there's no uh, space to rent any, any right now, just because demand for industrial is so hot and that they're really, that speaks to a demand to uh, the need to build out more of this space. So you're seeing a pretty healthy development pipeline in, in both primary and secondary markets for the industrial sector. Yeah, absolutely. Across the board, I will say uh, just at the end of last year, going into this year, I can think of two large transactions that happened that were just for this purpose. One is outside Laredo, Texas, right? Not necessarily a a major distribution market, you know, like a Chicago or or uh, New Jersey or Southern California. So that's one. And another was a large land deal we facilitated in Savannah. Now they're both near 
key access points, right? Savannah being near a port and Laredo being near the border. Uh, but it just they're both large industrial developments that are going up just to help satisfy the demand. As I said earlier, that's interesting because prior to that, and continuing as well, but you know, was building million square foot distribution centers in Chicago, Inland Empire, uh, maybe Atlanta, Dallas, and New Jersey. And now you're seeing these large or larger facilities coming in the secondary and tertiary markets, as you mentioned, just to fulfill demand. Yeah, it seems from from what I, you know, the way that we've been covering it too, that there's this, it's all about the, the, the dist- logistics, distribution, and almost like a blending of retail and industrial in a way where you need the distribute, the like people want their, want stuff quickly and people are even using their, what were retail stores as almost local distribution hubs. And that there's like this, this coming together of retail and industrial even further than it was in the past. That, that that's at least one. And, and that's, that seems like a trend that would then drive the need for, you know, last mile for r- rapid fulfillment in all markets. And I don't know if, if that, yeah. that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think across the board, um, I mean, listen, the demand for retail goods didn't disappear, right? right. We all still want things. We just are, are expecting them to be, reach us in different manners. Um, so maybe there, there, there certainly has been a change in the shift of retail retailing, right? So the regional malls in most communities have been struggling, right? But that demand didn't disappear. The demand just shifted to industrial. And what I like to say last year was industrial is the new retail. Right. And it, it's not exactly, you know, one for one, but you know what I mean? It's like, you know, our, our demand for, for be it batteries or clothing or anything we want around our house has not gone away. It's just that how we expect to obtain those products has changed. And all and the majority of that change has been through e-commerce and which, you know, demands for uh, distribution space. And no less if you're in, uh, you know, Charleston, South Carolina, than if you're in Atlanta, right? It doesn't make any difference. Big or small communities, that demand is there. Right. And it also seems like it creates this dynamic of, okay, if we're, if we're going to order more stuff online or through some kind of blended model, the way, the way that the order gets fulfilled can take a few different forms. Now it's, if it's not coming straight to your house, it's still maybe useful to have a retail presence for people near a bar where they could pick the, the item up, but also for returns, it becomes useful. So I think like it almost seems like the re the, the, the retail store, itself now is part of the distribution channel in a different way. It's not just a place where somebody is going in and making a transaction to buy. I think it could be where they're picking something up that they already bought or returning it. And so therefore, you know, the, the way that the whole logistics chain flows for retailers has become very important. And, and, and again, that's something that's not just for big markets, but for, but, but true for small markets. Correct. It should be true across the board, right? It, it shouldn't make any difference whether you're a big or small market. Um, but I think you make a great visual there about the retail store is there for distribution as well or sort of uh, distribution channel. I think maybe the difference is whereas you used to go into a retail store expecting it to be stocked full of product that you could take home. Mm-hmm. Now, perhaps you order that product online. Maybe you experience it in the retail store if you want to check it out first, but you order the product online and pick it up at the retail store, right? If you right. don't get delivered to your house. So that is a difference, but it doesn't make the, it still certainly makes the retailer uh, relevant in today's world. Right. And then there are some retailer, I think, I think what's been interesting is that, you know, we talk about 
resale dying or being, you know, for years, but there are a bunch of like of concepts that started as online retailers that now exist in the physical world because they felt, because it seemed like they felt like they needed that. Even if it wasn't going to be the, the the core of their business, it still was helpful to them, you know, like Warby Parker, you know, to have to have stores to to fully develop their concept. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, retail. I mean, one thing that's exciting about commercial real estate in general is it's it is changing. It's always changing all the years, but it's it's being in the middle of those changes that's super interesting, right? So you mentioned Warby Parker, right? They have stores that go along with their online presence, and then there's like the mattresses, right? If you're right. Uh, you know, that's one thing that some people just can't buy without trying out. So the read, it's just it's a uh, distribution and representation of the brand. Um, that you're not solely online and you're not you're not just in person. You're you're a blend of both, and, and to the customer at least, it should be seamless. And for the commercial real estate aspect, there's a demand for the retail space, and there's a demand to to make sure the distribution space can facilitate delivery. So another, um, you know, connected to retail, another point that's in this report is uh, Medtail and um, the emergence of of that as complementing the hospital system, but also taking up space that used to be more traditional retail. So um, I think that's like one of the factors that's there's retail's kind of gotten beaten up over the years, but I think there are these, these couple of factors would actually have, have helped what were, what were historically retail properties is, is this distribution thing that they're playing, but also the, now that the, the role that they're playing in the medical sector. So can you talk about that for a minute? Since that's in your report. Yeah, that's a good, it's another good and interesting trend that's going on where, you know, I think it begins from a commercial real estate standpoint of we should, we're going to be continuing to think of assets in ways that they weren't necessarily built for. So a retail uh, strip mall or, or regional power center might have only been thought to be full of restaurants and stores, right? And, and mm-hmm. medical office space would have gone to an office property. But in today's world, I think it's perfectly accepted now. Frankly, it drives traffic to have a medical office use, um, you know, a drop-in clinic, a dialysis center, a cancer treatment center, all those different types of things in a retail center. The, the um, healthcare systems have found it's uh, beneficial for them to reach to be closer to the customer. And as in, in many places, you know, they compete for for insured customers or any customers, frankly. Um, they try to put those retail outlets just closer to where their client base is, right? So it's just an interesting, you know, whereas the, the retail center may have been thought of in restaurants and retail, but now it's office. You know, even to some extent, you know, the restaurant, uh, the um, the delivery business, right? Mm-hmm. The food delivery business out of restaurants, you know, is that it could almost be a warehouse or an industrial use if it's a ghost kitchen. Right. But how much, you know, when, when a restaurant does, and I won't, well, I don't know the percentage across the country, but a smaller percentage of in-person dining and a larger percentage of, of delivery and pickup, is that really still a retail use? I'm not sure. So I think it's an interesting, the, the medical retail or med tail is symptomatic of sort of a shifting perception of how commercial real estate assets are used, not for their sole intended purposes, but for different types of purposes in the, now and into the future. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, if you're looking at a lot of restaurants now setting up either i mean for the quick service some of them setting up multiple drive-through lanes now or for other kinds of restaurants having multiple entrances so that there's one for people who are coming to dine in or pick up stuff themselves but now like an, an entire part of that's just 
for the delivery business and for and 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 separating that stuff out. So it's interesting the way that the physical layout and some of the land needs are changing for the restaurants as a result of of increasing takeout, delivery, et cetera. Right. And it's kind of going in two directions. Uh, on the one hand, it's going uh, from the, the dining in dining experience to more takeout and delivery, right? That's going that way. But I also, you know, just where I live here in Chicago, I saw and noticed that a, a uh, food business that was delivery only is now going into physical space. They're actually oh, a restaurant, right? You know, so it's interesting how yeah. it's kind of going both directions. You could be a ghost kitchen to start, right? And then your product could become so popular. You're like, oh, we should open up another location or an in-person location, right? That, that's sort of the other direction that's, that's where you see happening. Yeah. Yeah. There certainly is a lot of ghost kitchen stuff happening in New York too. And I don't know what I, what to make of all of them, but right, right. it's going to be uh, the, the shakeout of, of how, of how some of these concepts, you know, um, play out over the next few years will be, will be interesting. I think so. I guess the, you know, the last major sector that we, I think we touched on a little bit, but just overall, maybe going a little more into what, what you're seeing in the office sector and if there's any further clarity at this point as to, to what, we, what we think is going to happen there over, over the course of this year. Yeah, I think office is, um, and I don't want to mean it's not, not negative on office. I think it's just a question mark today. I think towards the end of last year, you know, or maybe let's go back. Let's say in the middle of last year, people said, hey, back come, there'll be a return to the office in the early fall. And then pandemic-driven situations made, well, we'll be at the beginning of the year. And now our current virus, you know, Omicron and so forth, it's, well, we'll see what happens. So I just think there's a lot of uncertainty. As I said, you still do see um, firms taking, making decisions to take space because they believe in the long run, there's mm-hmm. a benefit to being in person. And at the same time, there are um, businesses and users that'll say, like, I want to be either less in person and more, dis- more at home, or I want a more distributed model. And I think we're still in the middle of um, of users, occupiers trying to figure that out, and therefore the impact of commercial real estate is still TBD. Uh, one thing about office leases is they tend to be long term, right? Five or ten years, particularly in Class A properties. Um, so that's going to take a number of years to kind of shake out. Um, whereas you know retail leases are you know, can be a bit shorter, and, and obviously the changes happened really quickly in some of those spaces. Right. Uh, the, the last thing I'll say is, you know, as I said earlier about retail and, and office use, there's there's a question or whether some of that office space will become um, residential space, right, as one particular possible use, right? We used to think of um, adaptive reuse as industrial to loft office, perhaps, or maybe residential, but maybe now we have to start thinking about office space, uh, even modern office space being potentially more in need to be residential. Right. I mean, you look at like the financial district in Manhattan, there's a lot of residential there now that used to be office. So it, it has, it, it can work. Yeah, it can work. And it just, it wasn't really, as I said, the adaptive reuse in my mind yeah. was about the old, you know, hundred year old loft building, but maybe right. now it's a, about a 30 year old building that just, there isn't the demand and, and the location demands uh, and, the, and the market demands just more residential space. All right. Are there any other, you know, taking up a chunk of your time here? So, are there any other pieces of the report that I didn't um, touch on, or any other points that, that you wanted to to make that I haven't asked you about? Yeah, I think I think you touched. We touched on most of them, as I think I mentioned earlier. Land for us, particularly mm-hmm. in secondary and tertiary, land demand 
uh, is, is I won't say through the roof, because I don't know if it is truly through the roof, but it's high, right? It's it just land transactions historically take longer, you know, because obviously it's a it's uh, in not just an investment, but someone's got a plan to build and 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 um, be assured there's a demand for whatever they're planning to build there. But land has been land sales have been particularly robust for us. And then there's the unique vertical segments. Self storage has been strong across the country, and student housing. That's a segment that I think a year and a half ago, a year ago, we were you know people are like, huh, are students ever going to return to campus? And if so, how will they return? Um, but the investment and the money pouring into student housing um, has certainly returned, and it seems like people are not necessarily skeptical. So those are two other areas I'd probably I'd probably point out. All right. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I mean, self-storage, I think actually, if you look at the REITs, I think self-storage was either the number one or number two for total returns in 2021 compared to 2020. So there was definitely been a very, very strong yeah. performer. Yeah. And I suppose to some extent, it's a reflection of housing and housing lack of supply, right? You know, if you don't have a house that's big enough, you can turn to self-storage, maybe perhaps there's something there too. But I think just, I just want to point out that there's other uh, kind of narrower, more vertical investment classes that have turned out to be quite robust. Um, and then it's, as I said, the uh, office sector and, and portion of the hospitality sector are what still are sort of TBD. And we'll see how that unfolds this year. Well, I want to thank you for, you know, you covered a lot of ground in a, in a short amount of time. So I want to thank you so much for, for going through all that with us. Thanks for having me. It's been great fun chatting with you. And I hope I'm like an economist where I don't have to worry about what uh, coming back to check my words in six months because the market's dynamic, right? It's like just like the weather. Um, But there's always a lot to talk about and that's what's always fun. Exactly, exactly. All right, well, thank you again. Take care. Have a good day. David and Dan, this has been a fantastic podcast. Dan, thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge. Uh, I, I love the fact that it was very upbeat and it was very positive. And I think, David, you did a great job of choosing a good guest. Uh, man, what a great conversation. So, Dan, again, thank you for being here. David, of course, thank you for bringing him on as a guest. And our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Common Area Podcast with David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at WMRE, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back in two weeks for all the stories that matter to you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WMRE or Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. Today's podcast is brought to you by Moody's Analytics CRE. As a commercial real estate professional, you manage complicated decisions every day. And to make the right call, you need the full story. Moody's Analytics CRE harnesses expansive integrated data and analytical expertise from across the Moody's organization, then curates it specifically for commercial real estate professionals. Learn how to make better decisions and improve CRE workflows with Moody's Analytics CRE solutions at cre.moodysanalytics.com.